Whew, it's been a while. I feel, I feel rusty already. For those of you that don't know, I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and that two-sentence intro was me saying, I haven't preached since the middle of December, so it's, it's been a while. Because, is she out of here? Because my wife had a baby, and I guess he's needing to be fed, so he's not here right now. <laughs> but we'll point her out when she comes back in and make it really awkward for her. We probably won't, because we'll be in the middle of a very spiritual moment. Okay, so we probably won't do that. And no, we won't, we won't do that. <laughs> All right. Over the last couple weeks, with uh, the birth of our son, Abram, my wife and I have been spending a lot of time here. I imagine some college students can, I don't know if commiserate is the right word, because it's not really a, a bad thing. Although, for some of us, this screen symbolizes inordinate amounts of time, a, a very good pulse on our perhaps laziness and slothfulness over the break. Um, I won't go ahead and tell you that Kate and I have just started watching Netflix in large quantities. Um, it's something that we've been known to do for, for a long time now, a couple years, at least since we've gotten Netflix, um, mainly because of this feature here. I don't know if like when you're watching a show and then it ends and then it just pops up and says, would you like to continue? And for the most part, you're like, well, yeah, yeah, I would. Thank you, Netflix. That, it saves me a trip from getting up and having to go do something. I'll just sit here on the couch, stay firmly rooted and just keep watching Mad Men or Lost or whatever it is that you're into. Right now, Kate and I have been tearing through Chuck. It's a great series. It's very lighthearted. It's pretty funny. Uh, we only have one season left to go because um, we've been tearing through it. And I've, I've recently started Arrow for myself for my own benefit. Dave McGiffin is excited about that. Um, if you've ever looked at your past records of all the shows that you've watched and the dates that are attached to it, sometimes you can find yourself pretty sick at just how much television you've watched in 21 or 42 uh, minute increments, or if you're watching Sherlock in 88 minute increments, I don't know what they're doing over there across the pond, but they, they do TV a little bit differently. But you can see that this has become a part of our life. It's been a part of our, our culture in many cases, and it, um, as I'll argue, kind of cheapens things. Uh, for example, my wife and I don't have a ton of time together, and when we do, if, if I'm on one side of our sectional couch and she's on the other side and we're just watching Chuck, there's no connection there whatsoever. And it's a normal night when I pass out and she now is tending to Abram and we wake up and we've lost a lot of time together. I don't know if you guys know this, but it's the same sort of phenomenon. I've just recently found out about Flappy Bird in the last couple of days. It is insane. If you are an angry person, you will get angrier at this thing because it's so simple. You're like, yeah, I can do that. I can fly a bird through these two metal pipes without, without it touching and dying. I don't know about you guys, though, but it's, it's a lot harder than it seems. But you'll find yourself saying, you know, repeat, start, or whatever, like, great, got that record, now I'm going to keep going. And you'll find that it will take a lot of time, and you're just kind of zoned into your phone. If it's not Flappy Bird, then whatever else it is, Facebook, Twitter, um, those sorts of things that take up so much time and kind of have disconnected us from reality. I have currently about 650-some Facebook friends. <laughs> Thank you very much. I hang out with about 10 people. <laughs> you know? It's like we create these completely separate identities uh, for ourselves, whether it be Twitter or Instagram. Instagram is a, is a terrible thing because you usually post all of the best shots of your life. It's like... <laughs> 
I'm at the Air and Space Museum. Take a picture of me. Oh, wait, let me... Did it come out? No? Let me keep doing this. And like, you'll, you'll go through all these sorts of things to find that picture that you can post to make people think that you're a lot more interesting than you really are most of the time. This is completely separate, although they're, they're very related. McDonald's, does anybody still eat at McDonald's? Okay, thank you. A couple of us. I love a filet of fish sandwich. I don't know about you guys, but something about it. And some people that work there love the tartar sauce, and it's like just tartar sauce and a a bun that's been reheated in the microwave, you can tell, because it's very spongy, more so than any other sandwich that McDonald's does. But when they do a two-for special, right now Arby's is doing a two-for Alaskan caught, yeah, right, uh, cod fish sandwich, two for five dollars. And I've been saying for the last weeks, like, I got to go to Arby's and get myself a flavor, like a fish sandwich. You know what I mean? Uh, for some of you, the Christians in the room, it's Chick-fil-A. It's not McDonald's. We're, we're holy. We like to eat holy fast food. So we, we go to a place that shuts down on Sundays that makes us feel very good about ourselves. Um, or Go-Gurt. Um, nobody eats Go-Gurt, but think about the concept for a second. Ellen DeGeneres has a really brilliant bit where she says, when did we get in such a rush where we can't sit down and eat a cup of yogurt? We've got to have yogurt on the go. You know, it's like we, we're so busy with whatever, we can't even stop and sit to enjoy some tasty Yoplait yogurt. You know, fruit at the bottom, maybe. That's your speed. Or oikos, perhaps. I don't know. John Stamos, maybe. For a lot of us, though, those sorts of things... Um, Tell us something about ourselves. Spark notes. I have some students right now that are suffering through Jane Eyre. Uh, the gentlemen in the mix, for the most part, do not read the book Jane Eyre. They read the spark notes. Why read the book when you can just get the summaries? For the older folks in the audience, in our day, it used to be Cliff's Notes. Like, you would just read that so you didn't have to suffer through the whole book. But in that, you kind of cheapen the experience of what you're doing. In the same kind of way, when we think about spiritual disciplines, they offer us an alternative to copious amounts of Netflix. An alternative to McDonald's and its filet of fish sandwich and Go-Gurt and Spark Notes. One author, Richard Foster, says the classical disciplines of spiritual life like prayer and fasting and meditation, study, simplicity, solitude, service, confession, and celebration, they all call us to move beyond surface living into the depths. So many of us as Americans, we live on a surface level, whether it's checking our Facebook or our Twitter or whether it's eating lots of fast food and not sitting down to enjoy a meal or even prepare a meal. Whether it's spending all sorts of time doing these things, a lot of times we just kind of coast and live on the surface. The disciplines, though, they invite us to explore the inner caverns of the spiritual realm. They urge us to be the answer to a hollow world. In many ways, uh, the disciplines call us to respond to contemporary American culture. By no means are the disciplines just limited to America. However, it seems Americans really struggle with this idea of prayer, fasting. It's become a foreign concept to us. The idea of solitude, just hearing that evokes different images. But the disciplines, they're, they're calling us, in a sense, just stay with me. I know this isn't good, good English. To get unbusy, 
or unlazy, to get un unconnected, to unwatch 12 episodes in one sitting of The Office or Mad Men or whatever it is. They're calling us to something deeper, something more real. They're calling us to something potentially authentic, where we get the chance to learn not only about ourselves, but about Jesus. There's something beautiful about a fast where you forego eating food, where you start to feel it a little bit. And you can really start to measure your character in many ways because it's so easy to, to cheat or fib or give in. Um, it's so easy to hit the snooze button. I was supposed to get up at, I believe, 6.30 this morning. Didn't happen. Every day at, for my job, I'm supposed to get up at 5. Usually doesn't happen. It's so easy to hit that snooze button in those nice nine-minute increments on your phone or on your um, clock radio whatever you have. It's just, some of us have even programmed that in where it's like, I got to get up at seven, so I'll set the alarm for six. That way I have, uh, what's that workout to? Four snoozes or so. Like, and sometimes that even isn't quite enough for us. When we start thinking about terms like fasting and meditation and solitude, I imagine for most of us, your mind goes here. Ah, you can't see it quite so good, but that's, that's a cartoon rendering of St. Francis of Assisi, he's got birds in his hand. And see, there's little, little animals. When was the last time you were sitting on a tree stump and you had a little squirrel come up and be like, hey, little squirrel, how are you? It's like a weird Bob Ross moment where I'm just going to paint a friendly little squirrel here in the tree. <laughs> you know, that kind of that thing. Uh, or for some of you, you might think about this, yeah. Monty Python. I still haven't seen Monty Python. I know it exists, though, and I knew that some people might find this mildly humorous, so I included it. <laughs> but for a lot of us, we think like fasting and prayer and solitude is you put on your monk's robe and you, you disconnect from the world. And in a sense, you become someone completely uninteresting. You become someone completely not in touch with reality or contemporary culture. And for a lot of you, you believe that you become not relatable or not effective. We must not be led to believe, this is Richard Foster again, we must not be led to believe that the disciplines are only for spiritual giants and hence beyond our reach or only for that, those weird group of contemplatives who devote all their time to prayer and meditation. Far from it, he says. God intends the disciplines of spiritual life to be for ordinary human beings exercised in the midst of our relationships with our husband or wife, our brothers and sisters, our friends and our neighbors. This idea of prayer and fasting and solitude and simplicity, they are for us. You can think almost of the person with flappy bird in one hand and a Bible in another, or just like there, there, there's ways that you can connect with contemporary culture and still be engaged in certain things. But you also, uh, this sounds very cheap, but you give a nod to the spiritual realm and you don't, you don't allow yourself to settle for that shallow spirituality. When you think about your relationships, a lot of you have said in the past, like, I don't like it when relationships are shallow. I want to move beyond that. You're craving for something deeper. Yet, when we think about our relationship with Jesus, so often it is that shallowness that we detest everywhere else. The purpose of the disciplines is, at their core, life transformation. Their purpose is to replace those old destructive habits of thought with new life-giving habits. 
their purpose is to prepare us. Doug's been talking uh, the last couple times up here about the disciplines being proactive versus reactive. It's you preparing yourself for those moments when you're in the hospital room, for those moments when you have the big test, for those moments when you're heading into the huge interview that could really make or break the next five to ten years of your life in a sense. Those moments when your marriage is on the rocks, those moments when you have no idea what you're supposed to do. If we've been a people that's bathed in prayer, that's uh, understood fasting and those, those disciplines, they have prepared us for those moments. And I think that we'll actually go beyond seeing those interviews and those moments as such a heavy thing. Because there's always something more important, namely following Jesus. Their purpose is ultimately to make us like Jesus. And for a lot of us, that's a scary thing. Because we are so not like Jesus. And I'm not talking about just the fact that we get angry sometimes or we have no self-control or we watch hundreds of episodes of Chuck on Netflix. A lot of times the things that we're called to do, we just don't want to do because they don't fit with who we are. Jesus, in our mind, might be that one who's not relevant, who's wearing the monk's robe, who's got a squirrel in one hand and a, a bird in another. I got to tell this story just because it's cool. I believe it's in the Gospel of Thomas. Don't quote me on that. But one of the Gnostic Gospels, the stories that supposedly tell us things about Jesus, there's this one story of Jesus on the playground at Jewish school, and he just makes this dirt thing and tosses it up, and it becomes a, a bird. I've told you this before. I just think it's great, though, the image. Weird, weird kid on the playground, just kind of like, <laughs> I'm going to make a bird out of this dirt. You know, I mean, play around with that. It's, it's not canonical, so did it happen? Probably not, but it's still fun to think about, right? Crazy magician Jesus on the playground. Tonight, I want to talk about a discipline uh, that's entitled study. Study reorients our mind through careful and focused attention to the realities of life. Whether these realities be observed, read, or taught, and this reorientation enables our thoughts to move in a certain direction. Basically, the old adage, what you, I don't think this is an adage, I'm getting ready to make one up. What you fill your mind with shows forth in the things that you do. The things that you put into your mind show themselves to be true in, the, in what you think about and how you respond to certain things. I'm not bagging on Netflix. It's beautiful. Instant TV. <laughs> But if we just fill our minds with that, I think it, it shows itself in how we live. If we're not filling our minds with the things of Jesus through his word, I think that shows itself in the decisions that we make, in the difficult situations that we find ourselves in even. So this reorientation, it occurs through four different phases, repetition, concentration, comprehension, and reflection. We'll talk about that a little bit and we'll model it, but these things have been talked about in some degree throughout the Bible. If you think about the Old Testament for a second, uh, and this is Deuteronomy chapter 11, the Israelites were commanded to tie the words of the Lord as symbols on their hands to bind them on their foreheads, which people did very literally. It goes on to say, you're to teach these words. These are the laws of God, the commands of God. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk on the road and when you lie down and when you get up all the time. It's like, these are the things of God. These are the things of God. These are the things of God. What is this? Oh, on my forehead. Oh, that's the things of God. What's in my hand? Oh, it's the things of God. Oh, my parents keep talking about this things of God. It's over and over and over. It's repetition. It's repetition, 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 repetition. You know what I'm saying? Write them on the door frames of your houses. People still do this. 
uh, and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land. The Lord swore to give your ancestors as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Do these things over and over and over and over again. Fill your mind with these things over and over and over again. There's repetition that happens here. Repetition leading to concentration where you not just hear these things, but you begin to think about it. Some of your teachers may be forced repetition on you. I don't know if it's the periodic table. I don't know if it's dates and presidents of the United States. All of that is becoming seemingly outdated because you can just find it on your phone in like two seconds. So maybe we should be thinking more about you know, critical thought, that sort of thing, instead of just fact memorization. But we'll move on beyond that. This isn't an education lecture. Um, when you start having these facts, sometimes they'll make sense. You'll begin to concentrate on them and they'll lead to comprehension and then ultimately reflection. A lot of times the periodic table has nothing to do with you. Or does it have everything to do with you? I don't know. I'm not a scientist. So we'll just we'll leave that there for a second. I do have one example, though, of this idea of repetition. Erica is my sister in the back. When we were watching TV and we heard a curse word, what would we have to say out loud? bad word <clears throat> all throughout our childhood we would be watching tell my mom is super embarrassed right now I love you mom good parenting <clears throat> we'd be watching television and somebody would cuss or say something inappropriate mom would say bad word and then me and Erica would say bad word <laughs> it's like <laughs> when I think about repetition that's just that's just how it goes it's like yeah, we, we learned what the bad words were. For me, I kind of took that as like, okay, yeah, that, those are the bad words. If I need it, you know, I'll dip into my huge lexicon of terrible words and use them on people and in circumstances that make sense because my mother has instructed me. <laughs> Not really. Um, but like that idea of repetition, at times it doesn't mean much to you, but there is a potential there to move beyond repetition into concentration uh, to comprehension, and then ultimately to reflection. There did come a time, yes, when I understood that there's certain things that you don't say at certain, at certain moments. There's also an emphasis on our minds in the New Testament. It's not just writing things on your hands or on your foreheads or on the door frames of your homes, but it goes beyond that. In the New Testament, it moves from almost like writing these things down to writing them on your heart. It's the difference between like the external and the internal. Paul summarizes this, I think, quite beautifully when he um, talks about the transformation of our minds in, in Romans chapter 12. We probably know this verse if we've spent a lot of time in churches, and for some of us, that's our story. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. There's lots of disagreement on what that means. For some people, it's complete removal from the world. For some people, it's we don't have a television in the home, let alone do we call out what the bad words are. For some people, it's we don't um, participate in anything the world is doing. I think that's kind of going about, about it a bit too far, but it says don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and improve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's this renewal that should be happening in Christians that doesn't just happen by osmosis. It doesn't just happen by us sitting there and then all of a sudden receiving this new knowledge, this new revelation, this new stuff. In many instances, I think Paul would probably agree with this, it comes through the hard work of study. It comes through the hard work of repetition, concentration, um, comprehension, reflection, looking at these things and then having them make some sense 
in our lives. How do we do this? At least one way we do this is by studying the Bible. There's other ways, there's other things that we study. We study people. Go to the mall, walk around, you study people. You see their eccentricities. You see how they act. You see how they relate to one another. For those of you in relationships, you study the person you're in relationship with. You understand who they are. You understand how you need to act. The whole stuff about love languages, like identifying what their love language is. If you give them a gift and all they want you to do is put your arm around them, you've misidentified that. It, it could go terribly wrong. You need to understand those things. You need to take a quiz. You need to take a test. Identify those things. Kate and I know what our love languages are, but we still don't really practice them because we are both stubborn people and we say my way is the best way so my love language must be the best love language so get on board with that you know so, stuff like that but for Christians it's very important that we learn how to study our Bible I struggled with how to make sense of this because we're all at different stages in life some of you have not even opened up a Bible before on your own and looked at it uh, for some of you, you've spent a lot of time studying the Bible. My story is I went to Christian school from kindergarten through 12th grade. I, don't, I wouldn't call that a study of the Bible, but at least I was around it a lot. The stories were very familiar to me. Then I went on to Bible college, and it was at Bible college where I met certain individuals that could open up the Bible and make it do things that I've never seen before. That sounds really terrible, but I mean, they just knew it in a to, to a totally different level than I'd ever been exposed to in my life. And it set a passion in me to want, to want to do that, to want to demonstrate that to other people, and then to have that in my own life so that I could know Jesus. It's amazing to me that we have one collection of stories and letters that, com that comprises God's word to us, and yet at times we treat it so flippantly. Even as Americans, like we actually get to have this and it's not a big deal. Other people would and have died for that sort of opportunity. Tonight, I want to look at Genesis 1. It's a very familiar passage. I want to pull some things out of it. I want to look at it in a way that goes maybe beyond a devotional reading. Most of the time when we read the Bible devotionally, all we want is what it means for us. And we don't really care much about context. We don't really care much about, this is going to sound wrong, but about Jesus. We just want to know what the story or anything has to do with me so that I can be different and live my life in a different way. At times, that's very separate from who Jesus is and what he's called us to. Okay? So we're going to look at this passage here. And I've thrown up some fancy schmancy Hebrew terms there just to keep you awake. Or to put you to sleep. I'm not sure which one yet. But we'll try it. This is Genesis 1.1. Some of you know this from the very bottom of your heart. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Some of you have in your mind was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I want to pull out three, I believe, three truths or three things from this chapter. The first one is the polemic of Genesis chapter 1. Oftentimes when we read this story, we read this story as 21st century Americans uh, that are looking to prove something. 
Namely, we're looking to prove that evolution is completely and utterly wrong and Jesus and Genesis 1 is completely and utterly right. When we do that, we miss a lot of what was happening in the historical context of Genesis. You see, back then, science wasn't necessarily this thing that people cared about as much as we do. There was other things happening in the ancient audience. The first thing that was happening was, who is God? That was their biggest question in most cases. This story looks and feels and acts like so many other stories that were happening around the same time. For example, there were Babylonian creation accounts where you see not one God creating but two gods warring against each other. Uh, one God would tear apart the other one and sprinkle her blood on the sands and that was, that's where people came from. And those people were not created because they were good and beautiful and whatever. They were, they were created basically to serve the gods, to do the gods' work for them. Genesis is writing not necessarily in a response to that, but in that conversation. All of these stories would have been well known by the ancient audience. So when they hear something like, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, they'd stop and say, who, what, where, why? The fact that one God is creating and not two or three or four or five was a huge thing. The fact that it's just one God doing this and not all these others is, is an underlying message that was happening in Genesis that was more relevant to them than how did this creation take place. There's a polemic happening here. You can see it as it goes through uh, where it says that darkness was over the surface of the deep. That Hebrew phrase, all pene, to home. That big word to home is the word for the deep and it would have conjured up scary images in an ancient audience. Almost like the boogeyman or Frankenstein. <laughs> Sorry, Doug, that was a bad one. I don't know. But like in, in, their, in their context, those were things that you did not mess with. You also didn't mess with the waters because the waters represented this chaos, these things that were not able to be tamed, the things that could potentially destroy you. But what's interesting in this text is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters as if to say, you stay right there because I got this. We've talked about this before, but what's happening in these first two verses is God saying to his people, the things that you fear to the very core of your being, don't worry about it. I got this. So right from the very beginning, we learn there's one God he's creating and there's also this God has the deep and has the waters and has all these scary things under his control. And that's a good thing for this group. The other thing that we need to see too very briefly is the structuring device of Genesis 1. Say this with me. Tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu. Sweet. Love it when people talk Hebrew. <laughs> okay. Tohu here means formlessness. Bohu means emptiness or void. Some people would say the whole chapter is structured poetically by these two terms. And what's happening is the first, let me see if this goes up here, the first three days answer this huge question of formlessness. And then days four, five, and six answer this big question of 
void or emptiness. So as it lays out, the first three days, which we oftentimes put in a very literal structure, this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened, then this happened, we miss out on the artistry of this. We miss out on the beauty, perhaps even the poetic nature of this text, where in these first three days, God is answering the question of forming the world. And in the final four, five, and six, he's answering the question of what do we fill it with? Watch how this works out. Uh, in the second day, it says, excuse me, the first day, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. That verb there is that forming type of verb where he's separating light and darkness. He called the light day, darkness he called night, there was evening, there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault, a rakia, say rakia. Nice. Uh, between the waters to separate water from water. Follow this and try to draw a picture of it in your mind for a second. God made the vault or the expanse or the rakia, and he separates the water from under the vault from the water above the vault. Think snow globe almost. So there's this crusted dome thing that's keeping the waters up there and there's keeping the waters down here. It's like God is putting this sky piece into the mix, separating, shaping, taking waters from above and separating them from the waters from below. Can you see it in your head? Sort of, kind of, maybe, possibly. I have a picture of this, but just... Stay with me. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning the third day. So here we have three days and in that three day period, God has formed the earth. He's in a sense answered the question of Tohu, the problem there, the chaos that was involved, all the stuff, he's formed it and he's fashioned it. He's separated light. He's separated darkness. He's put an expanse in the sky, the waters from above, the waters from below, separated the dry land and the seas. And it looks almost like this. We have a dome here. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. This would be like the rakia, that dome. You guys seen the Truman Show? Really? That's it? A couple of you? It's a classic. It's beautiful. It's probably on Netflix. There you go. It's on Netflix. We're all in luck, most of us. The Truman Show is about this guy. Well, I'll ruin it for you. It's like 20 years old. Sorry if you haven't seen it. It's this guy who was born basically on a sound stage. He was born in this created bubble, and he didn't know it. He was just living his life, and people on the outside were watching him grow up. We're watching him fall in love. We're watching him get his first kiss. We're watching him get a job, like rooting for him for his whole life. This guy's like 30 years old when he finally understands that he's been trapped inside of this fake world. And the very last scene or one of the last scenes is him on a boat and he just runs into this wall that is painted like a sky. That's what I think of when I think of the rakia. It's this, in their mind, this dome thing that was keeping all the waters up there. Check this out. When it rained, like in Genesis 6, the flood happened. Cool movie with Russell Crowe coming out. Noah, okay, I'm just throwing in all sorts of TV for you guys. It says that the floodgates opened. Waters from above poured down into it. 
See what I mean? So like their mindset is completely different than ours, right? So we have this rakia. We have all this water up here. We got the water below. We got the earth. We got the dry land. Great, great, great. So the structuring device here is in day one, he's separating light and darkness. He's separating water and sky in day two, and he's separating land and sea in day three. Every one of those instances is answering this question of tohu. It seems as though there's a glazed look on your faces. Are we good? It's kind of, sort of. Okay, stay with me because there is a payoff here. The next three days answer the question of what is going to fill this stuff. So we'll skip around a little bit. Uh, in day four, it says, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Sun, moon, stars. God's seeing like light and darkness and saying, and now we have sun and moon and stars and these things go together. Day five, it says, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. The sea and the sky are now filled with animals. Day six, which corresponds back to day three, God creates animals. It says, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Here we have sun and moon and stars answering, in a sense, day one. We have sea creatures and birds answering day two. We have land animals and humans answering the filling of the land and the sea. Oftentimes, the text that we use to prove our science in doing that misses the beautiful artistry of what's happening in that ancient context. I'm not here to try to promote a case that a literal reading of Genesis is the wrong reading, but I am here to promote the case that we should see these things as well and these things come out to us in the study of the Bible. So far, this hasn't really hit you guys in a meaningful way, but I want to look at just a couple more verses. This is like the climax of chapter one where God's creating humans. It says, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Tell me something about that. What sticks out to you in that text? Image and likeness. What does that mean? And in the holy hush, we join hundreds of years of scholarly debate where they say, I don't know, something. What else sticks out to you? Come on, somebody see it. Who's he talking to? The Christians in the room say, Trinity, Jesus, Holy Spirit, God. The Jewish folks in the audience say, not the Trinity, <laughs> right? Uh, but what else is important with this? That's a good one, Jess. What else is important here? Who does he create? Male and female. And what does he create them for? To fill the earth and subdue it before that? So that they may rule. Who's ruling? Male and female. In Genesis 1, there is no hierarchy. There is no submission. There is no 
man up here, woman down here. There is none of that in Genesis 1. They're both created with this job to do. Seemingly, it's the same job, and seemingly, they go about their business working this out. People call this vice regency or vicegerency, fancy terms for basically people being God's rulers on earth doing God's job for him, in a sense. So we see this polemic where God's saying, it's not like the other stories you've heard. I've got this under control. Deep waters, whatever, it's okay. Trust me. We've also seen the structure where we miss the artistry of Genesis 1 a lot of times. And then third and finally, we see this idea of male and female. They're created together in Genesis 1. They're created with a job to do. There's no hierarchy. There's no number one and number two in Genesis 1 at least. Male and female were created in the image of God to do God's work on the earth. What's interesting about this, it's not until the fall, it's not until sin enters into the world where God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Originally, in Eden, in creation, it was male and female. We've, in a sense, taken some of those fall categories, the hierarchies, and said that's what Jesus wants. And we've seen how that plays out a lot of times in the relationships that we have even now. We see it play out where two months into a marriage, I demand my wife to fold clothes. Yeah, that happened. Yeah. We see how it plays out where people are diminished, their roles are shortchanged, their talents, their gifts are, are put as secondary. We don't see the image and the likeness not only in male-female relationships, but we also privilege who that actually applies to in, in our lives. We see people on the street that might be homeless or might be this or that or might be in this crowd or that crowd and we say that person is less than, that person is the other, that person is not as good as me. And we miss this idea in Genesis 1 that we are all created in the image and likeness of God. Paul takes this in Ephesians 2 and he says, for we all of us are God's workmanship. The Greek term there is poema. We are God's masterpiece. Created to do good works, which God had preordained for us. In Genesis 1, you can hang out with the science questions and see what that's all about. But hopefully by the end of it, you begin to see the bigger things that we are all worth something. We all have inherent value that has been bestowed upon us by the creator of the entire universe. But yet, as we live our lives, we completely shortchange that. I'm not good enough. He can't use me. He doesn't want me. That person doesn't want me either. My parents don't want me. Like, those are the things that stick in our head and we don't hear the truth that comes through, hopefully, the study of God's word where it reinforces to us over and over and over, you are valuable, you are created with purpose, you are created with beauty, you are created equal, you are created to do great things that God has called you to.
those, I believe, are the, the points of reflection and application. So just to conclude, we see that study, it reorients our mind through careful and focused attention to the realities of life, and that enables our mind to move in a certain direction. The study of the Bible helps us to meditate upon that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, gracious, and excellent. It allows us to focus on not Flappy Bird, not Chuck, not... McDonald's, not the things that are short and cheap and take us away, the shallow things. It forces us and allows us even to see beauty and depth by challenging us to understand who we are through Christ. Study helps us to see Jesus and it helps our mind to focus on him so that we do not settle for surface living. Perhaps in this room, we have been settling for many weeks, many months, maybe our entire life for things that don't have depth and don't have meaning and don't have lasting value. Two things. One, you are valuable. You are special. You were created with purpose and you were created for much more than oftentimes we allow ourselves to imagine. Two, all of that is available through Jesus. Jesus. 